Thank you, Alex, for leading us in arguably one of my favorite modern hymns. A blessing to remember the goodness of God even in the midst of difficult times. It makes those times pale in comparison. Isn't that just exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us numerous times that the trials of this world pale in comparison to the glories to be revealed to us later? So we're grateful that we can recount those things. If you have little ones, you want them in, in Sunday school, they can be dismissed now for the rest of you, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As is our habit, we'll be in the Word of God today, God's plan for a healthy church. Happy Mother's Day to all our moms out there, whether you're a biological mom or you've mothered children you didn't birth or through teaching or adoption or volunteer work, you uh, have made a difference in children's lives. Thank you for your selflessness, your dedication. May as Proverbs 31, 28 tells us of a godly mother, her children will rise up and bless her. That, of course, usually happens when they're grown up and you realize what you did. Right now, they're going to rise up and ask for something, but later they'll rise up and bless you. Her husband also, he praises her saying, and this is how husbands, how you wash your wife with your words. Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. Mark this, ladies, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. What do you look for, single guys, when you're looking for a wife? A woman who fears the she fears the Lord, that means she'll do what he says, that means she'll be submissive to his will for her and come up under his authority, and that's what the Lord thinks is beautiful. Verse 31 says, give her the product of her hands. In other words, those things don't come back empty. Let her works praise her in the gates. We're going to move into our teaching time together today. Paul has been helping the church to have discernment and and the absence of discernment simply is a result of an ignorance about the scriptures. We saw that. Ignorance about doctrine. If you don't understand the Bible, you can't have discernment because discernment is simply the application of biblical knowledge. And if you don't have discernment, what you'll have is immaturity. And where you have immaturity, you have gullibility. And in thinking about parenting, of course, on this Mother's Day and the instruction that obviously must go on, not passive parenting, letting a child decide for themselves, because if that's what we're doing, they're not going to rise up and call you blessed. They're going to rise up and call you something else. But thinking about children, who is more gullible than a child? As parents, we have to protect our children, and so we teach them when they're young not to talk to strangers, and when they're young not to go too far away from home. We have to care for them and watch everything they do and everything they eat and every friend they make and every acquaintance. We have to protect them from things around the house that can cause them great bodily harm, protect them from things that our culture shows them which will cause them great spiritual harm. We ask the questions, what are they listening to and where, who are they interacting with? And we have to check up on those answers because they're just like we are, aren't they? And we do all of that diligently because we don't want our kids to be gullible and deceived, believing that those things which are not true and acting on them. We have to protect them from ideas that can corrupt their thoughts and lead them to, uh, to Jesus so that they can have the Holy Spirit guide to continue that process when we're no longer around. Uh, we are in the guardianship business as parents, and we want our children to be discerning, and the only way they're going to be learn to be discerning is for them to understand what we say, not just understand it, but buy into it and then act on it. And the same is true in the church. The only way we can be discerning is to understand the scriptures. If we're discerning, then that means we're applying the scriptures to what we're hearing and seeing and the deceit and the seductions of the enemy, which allow us to understand 
what they really are. So we can't just read the scriptures. We have to buy into them and act on them. Just like you want your children when you give them instruction, not to just say okay and then do what they want. Where you, have, where you don't have discernment, of course, in the church, you have immaturity and childlike decision-making. Uh, where you have immaturity, you have gullibility. Where you have gullibility, you have effective deceit, and you have tragedy in the lives of people, and such was the case in Corinth, and you know that because we've been studying now for several months. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, that the Lord gave to the church pastors and teachers, and if they're doing the job that they're supposed to do and giving you the word of God and breaking it down for you, what does it mean, what does it, what does it say, what does it mean by what it says, and how does that apply to me, then it's for the equipping of the saints for works of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And when we're doing that, then as a result, we're no longer to be children. Gullible, easily deceived, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You've got to be able to recognize those things just like we want our children to. And so as we teach the church, we want to make sure we speak the truth, verse 15, in love, so they can understand what to watch for. And that's what Paul is doing with the Corinthian church. And, and we saw last time, as we just make a quick review, in verse 7 of chapter 11, you can look there. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? So he's bringing up an obvious case that's going on in the church, some things that are being said. Paul lowered himself. That's what it means to be humble. Literally, it means ranking yourself lower than is appropriate. Paul did that. He said, did I, make, did I commit a sin? So he's comparing what he did in lowering himself and not taking, not taking any kind of remuneration from the church which with which what is apparently going on with the ministry of false teachers. So why did he do it? He said, so that you may be exalted. He did it to place them in a position of honor. He didn't commit a sin. They could show them how highly he thinks of them. They would know the value that they have in his eyes. And that was our next mark of a faithful teacher, one who's going to be, uh, give you uh, complete instruction from the Word of God. One you can believe. By their actions, they make sure the church knows how valuable and important it is. We saw that last time. How did he exalt the church? How did he lift it up and, and let it know that even if he was unappreciated when he was doing it, how important it was? We saw Paul had the, had the right to be paid by the church. We saw that the church had an obligation to pay Paul from 1 Corinthians 9. And we went through all these verses last time. We won't go through them again. You can catch up with that on Spotify. But he says this. He says, nevertheless, we did not use that right Paul said no to it. He had a right to be paid by the church. They had an obligation to provide it, but he didn't use it. And then here it is. Here's how Paul exalts the church. He ranked himself lower than he uh, could be ranked. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So Paul didn't commit a sin in lowering himself and refusing any money from the church. He said, instead, we suffer whatever we need to suffer, and we will not take any money from you. And Paul knew that there was a faction in the church that had a problem with supporting Paul as he did his ministry, and Paul was a strong believer, so he gave up the right to support, even though he'd given many reasons that he could have it. And he says this, he says, we endure all things so that, mark it, we will cause no hindrance. Literally, we bear in silence, so we bear without complaint, we endure whatever is deprived, he says, and this is present active indicative. So he continually endured throughout the current ministry with them, the absence of things that he had a right to and obviously, no doubt, needed. We saw that word hindrance is a Greek noun. It has to do with a wartime word. It has to do with breaking up roads and breaking up bridges to make it impossible for armies to pass over. 
And he uses it here and just says, look, I wouldn't do anything to chop up a highway or tear down a bridge by which the gospel is advancing to you. That's how he exalted the church. He was more interested in the gospel coming unhindered because he knew there were many in the church that caused some trouble. And so he was more concerned the gospel got there unhindered than he was about his own rights. And he didn't want it to do anything that would make it difficult for them to accept the gospel. That's why he says, even though I have the right to your support, I don't want you to think that I'm in this for the money. So I set that right aside. So he was willing to endure anything rather than give those who were questioning him a reason to oppose him or give people a reason not to be saved. And then verse 9 was, for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So we saw Paul's needs were met, but not by the church. And that was our next mark of a faithful leader. It was just they aren't in it for the money, obviously. And I think it just comes goes without saying. But that's not the only place, of course. not surprising Paul uh, does that without money. He doesn't love money for sure. When he was talking to Timothy, and I don't have a slide for this, I'll just read it to you. You can turn 1 Timothy 3.3 if you want. Just be there for a moment. But Paul gives the qualifications for those who aspire to the position of elder. He says they aspire to a good thing. And then in verse 3 it says, not addicted to wine, and we looked at all that, or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, and then marked as free from the love of money. That has to be a general trait of everybody who wants to oversee the church. If that's not the case, then they disqualified themselves in this area. First Timothy 6.10, why do we have to be free from the love of money? Well, Paul said, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, obviously, and some by longing for it has, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. And we know that over and over again in the church, don't we? But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And just in case you're thinking, well, yeah, make sure the ministers don't love money. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 talks to everybody. Make sure that your character is what? Free from the, you got it, love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we're free from the love of money because the Lord says for us to be, but we're reminded that we don't have to worry about it. Why? Because who, who really takes care of us? It's not our portfolio. It's not what we hope we can retire on. It's not the fact that we've done well uh, with our job and we have many, much coming in. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Those things take wings and fly away, but the Lord does not. And so... That next mark of a faithful leader was there and in it for the money. He's not, you know, he's not done making sure, though, that the church knows the difference between deception and truth. They're going to move on. Look at our, in your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 11, 10. And they don't want him to be, de- he doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to be gullible. Look at 2 Corinthians 10, 11, or 10, 11, 10 through 15. I'll read the whole thing, and we'll come back to this first passage. He says this, as the truth of Christ is in me, This boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Verse 11. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. Verse 12. But what I'm doing, I'll continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, Verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. I'll start at verse 10, if you would. Paul says this, and the truth, as the truth of Christ is in me. And again, from Paul's example, this is just an obvious mark of a faithful teacher. It's number 18, if you're keeping track, back from chapter 10. An overseer, you can believe, they're truthful. And it's just an obvious point. That's how Jesus was known. 
And if you think about Jesus' teaching, some are sent to ask him a question in Matthew twenty two sixteen, And he says this, and he sent, they sent their disciples to him, and along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that, Mark, you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial in any way. So they at least recognize, even though they're going to try to trap him here, that he's, he's got to be known as truthful, and he is. He's going to speak the truth, and they think when he speaks the truth, they're going to get him in trouble. But a faithful teacher is going to be known as truthful. They're going to make it a priority to live in the way that they speak and, they, and live in the way that they teach. There's a lot of ways truth comes out, and it's important that it's part and parcel of uh, what happens with those who lead the church. And, beloved, you don't have to look very far in false teaching and those who want to fleece the flock and, and the things that you see on television and YouTube. You don't have to look very deeply into their life to realize truthfulness is not part of their character. Because that character trait is not generally true of false teachers. Conflicts between what they say and the reality of the situation. And that whole idea that we've looked at before of peddling the word of God, that's how false teachers work. Second Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Paul says, look, I don't have things in my life that you don't know about that are going to kind of spring out. And then I'll be brought to shame. I'm dealing with those and continue to deal with those regularly. I'm not without sin. No one is. Uh, Paul's just, I deal with those things, so there's not going to be any shame, no, un, no found out sin I'm, I'm, uh, I'm acting on. And then this, and this is how false teachers work, not walking in craftiness, so somehow man, manipulating the whole thing so that it, it goes like you want it to go, or adulterating the Word of God, saying, helping the Word of God say what you want it to say, but by the manifestation of truth, there it is, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul wasn't making things up to get people to do something. Uh, he wasn't mishandling the Word of God to make it say something it doesn't say. Uh, false teachers have this, this very common response. Don't Bible check me. They'll say something to you, and they'll say, okay, I know you're also Bible checking me. I'm just giving you the Word of the Lord. Don't Bible check me. Why? Why, why not Bible check you? Because we're going to find out that what you just said was wrong. Okay? Very common amongst false teachers. Paul wasn't doing that. His life was truthful. didn't misrepresent himself. He, in fact, in everything that he knew and all the education he had, he said he just counted that as rubbish, and he just knew Christ and him crucified and faithfully taught that to the church. He was the guy he claimed to be. His testimony lined up. His timeline checked out. Right? It's not going to be a resume that says one thing, and you go back and say all those dates don't line up. You know. So he could, com- he could commend him then to every man's conscience. He's just like, you know, we speak the truth to you, and I commend you, every man, in the sight of God. God's my witness that I'm telling you the truth. So there's no flags going on in the minds of true believers concerning Paul's character and his integrity. Because, and because that's the case, he says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Now, what does he mean by that when he says that? Well, and it's just the second part of verse 10 there, if you're looking there. He's foreshadowing a little bit. He is saying, you know, false teachers are not going to literally, and that's what it means by stopped. This boasting of mine will not be stopped. Fence. They're not going to fence in my right to recount not only the reason for not taking support from the Corinthian church, because that's the immediate issue at hand, isn't it? That's the thing they're kind of grilling about. But he's going to talk about lots of other places where God has used him or where God has verified his work through Paul. So he's not just going to be in Achaia, so that the church can believe he's truthful and trustworthy. If I'm going to have to do this foolishness, in other words, if I'm going to have to recount the things that I've done, it won't be just from around here. And lots, lots of other places I've ministered, and he's going to get to that in just a moment. But as a footnote, he says this. He goes, this boasting of mine will not be stopped, mark this, in the regions of Achaia. And I like that, and it gives us a little hint 
at, at that time of Paul's ministry, Achaia would have been considered the southern portion of Greece where Corinth is located. Macedonia would have been considered the northern and central portion of Greece and not where it's located now. So regions just indicates that there may have been other churches around the church in Corinth. And we do know from Romans 16.1 there was also a church in Sincrea. Remember that? Because um, Phoebe was from there. Well, Sincrea was only just a few miles from this Corinthian church. So we know there was at least one other church in what would be considered Achaia. And so... We don't know how many there were. There was at least one. And back in 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, and you might not remember this because that's been years ago, he addressed it to all the saints who are, in, who are throughout Achaia. So there's lots of people who have, um, have come to faith and they've moved into this general area and perhaps are part of this Sincrea church or part of the, the church in Achaia or Corinth. And, and the gospel's gone out, people have been converted, and at least two churches were planted, and there were believers in lots of other areas. And that concerns Paul because I think it implies that it indicates that the influence of false prophets was also a little broader than just the area where Paul was right then. And so Paul says, addressing these other areas, he says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Literally, he says, they, false teachers, are not going to fence in my right to recount, number one, not only my reason for not taking support from the Corinthian church and taking it from other churches, because remember, Church of Macedonia showed up there and took care of his, his, um, his needs. We're going to see him address that in just a minute about love. And somebody's going to have a problem with that. They're like, well, you wouldn't take support from us, but you took it from Macedonia. You might not love us. And that's our next thing we're going to look at. But Paul just says, number two, if I'm, I'm going to have this foolishness, I'm not going to stop just around here. I'm going to talk about lots of other places where God has used me. And he's going to verify the work and the truth of his, God, of, of his work. So I, I think you get that. Now look at verse 11. So he says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? Well, God knows that I do. And, and this seems to refer directly to the fact that he would take gifts and support from other churches, namely Macedonian church, which made some of the Corinthian church jealous. Why would he take it from them and not take it from us? And the response from some was, he must not love us very much. He must not really love us if he won't take, take uh, uh, gifts from us. And he responds, it's not because I don't love you, because I do. And it's not from pride, you know, or, or because I would not as willingly receive from you as from any other church. It's not because I'm more unwilling to be under obligation to you than to, to any other. We already know why he wouldn't take it. But again, he has to come back and he has to defend himself. He tells the church, you know, I have a, I have a tender affection for you. That's what it means he loves them. An, attra- an attachment to you. It's because I can best promote the gospel and prevent putting up a roadblock from people who would come to the gospel by taking something from you. That's the reason why I don't do it. And that right to say no or yes, I get to exercise as I see fit. And he just got through 1 Corinthians 8 talking about rights. And he just says, you know, I I have the right to say yes or no to this. So it could be that, you know, it might have been thought that his unwillingness to receive aid from them was some proof of standoffishness towards them a lack of affliction, uh, affection or, or a distrust that, you know, he harbored animosity for how he'd been treated in the past. That's, this is what they're bringing up. They're just trying to entice him. Uh, you can kind of hear the words of false teachers there kind of saying these things, enticing him to go ahead and take support. We're going to see in just a minute why. But based on his truthfulness, he just got through saying the truth of Christ is in me. So based on his truthfulness, he said he has exalted them by his policy and he sincerely denies any other motive. And he's doing as best he can to try to convince them otherwise. But when it comes right down to it, and if he can't convince them, and sometimes false accusations can't be overcome. You just have to say, God knows. 
I mean, when it comes right down to it, I've got nowhere else to turn. I mean, ultimately, rest in that when you're falsely accused, if you're, if you're leading uh, the church. If they won't believe you and you've done everything you can to help them see the truth, it's your last resort. God knows. You just have to leave it to him. And First Peter, uh, certainly 5, tells us what happens at the end. And Paul says, be ready. He says, uh, verse 12, look at there. But what I am doing, I will, he says, continue to do. And what is that? Well, ministering without charge planting churches wherever he goes to a city, preaching the gospel, doing faithful ministry like he's always done. And again, from Paul's example, and this is just an obvious mark of an overseer that you can believe and trust, they're faithful. They, they do the work. They put the time in. And an overseer is somebody that you know is going to put the work that needs to be put in, and they're going to do it on a regular basis. So it's not going to be do as I say, not as I do. It's going to be working together with the church, ministering and serving. And so he's faithful. I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm just going to keep on doing it. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, talks about this type of ministry. It's, it's a passage I've shared with you before. When you're not sure what to do as a minister, you can go back to this passage, and that helps you uh, to know what you're supposed to do. Uh, in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says this. It says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gains. So in other words, you're not in love with money, but with eagerness. Verse 3, nor yet is lording, lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And it's not that he is doing everything around the church. This isn't an instruction to the pastor that he has to do all things, or even everything in the church that some want him to do. But he's faithfully doing the equipping and the leading by example, the types of ministries the Lord has given him inside of his gift set. That kind of how it always works inside the church. And that's the kind of ministry Paul's talking about, just faithfully discharging it. So when Paul says in verse 12, he says, what I'm doing, I'll continue to do. And in Paul's situation, he's going to continue to work in his sphere, which we looked at before, remember? So that I may cut off, he says, opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, in the matter about which they're boasting. How are they trying to be regarded? As an eminent apostle. They're trying to be regarded as superior to Paul. They're trying to be regarded as the ones who've really done the work around the Corinthian church. They want the name and the recognition. And the whole idea here is obvious. If Paul keeps doing what he has been doing and moving on to other places and doing the same thing there, then mark it, there's no way they'll even be regarded as Paul's equal, let alone superior to Paul. Because they're Johnny-come-latelys and they're in the church taking... taking uh, credit for what they didn't do. We know they're proud. We know they're arrogant and self-seeking, greedy men because false teachers are that way. And back in chapter 10, verse 12, they were so bold as to class and compare themselves with themselves, so they established a standard that they made and then lived up to the standard and thought they were all-stars. They commended themselves. They made themselves the standard. They made, uh, they boasted beyond measure. In verse 13, they overextended themselves and what they had done in verse 14, they claimed responsibility for everything good. They thought of themselves as the most of eminent of apostles, but it was all smoke and mirrors. And how are they going to be able to be considered equal to Paul among those who believe Paul was a true apostle? And the, question, and, and the answer is, they're not. If Paul continues to do what he's been doing, there's no way they can measure up because they don't do those kinds of things and they don't have that character. So Paul's desire is just to cut off that opportunity, but not because he's going to do something special or anything extra, just what he's been doing. Because they can't succeed in being considered equal with Paul if Paul just keeps doing what he's been doing. And 1 Corinthians 9, 2, 
remember as he talked to the church, he says, if to others I'm not an apostle, again, just kind of defending his right to be one, at least I am to you. Why? Well, you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You saw the work of the apostle. You saw the signs and wonders, and you're established and growing. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, you are our letter. I don't need a letter of recommendation to you. I don't need a letter of introduction to you to say what my credentials are. You're our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. It's obvious that I've been here, and it's obvious the Lord's work is through me. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. They were the mark of his apostleship. They were the letter of Christ which spoke on his behalf. He put in the hard work. He sacrificed. He worried. He gave himself away. And how are the false teachers going to keep up if he keeps that up? Well, they won't. And it's not just that. What's really going on that's really annoying false teachers right now is what? If Paul continues not to take any money for his ministry to the Corinthian church. That's really annoying to them. That's the fly in the ointment. Because they're taking money and they're trying to get Paul in every possible way to take some kind of a remuneration from the Corinthian church. But Paul wouldn't. And in 1 Corinthians 9.15, he seems pretty firm about that, doesn't he? But I've used none of these things. What things? The rights to be paid by the church, the rights of the minister, the, the missionary to be paid by the church. I've used none of these rights, and I'm not writing these things so that they will be done so in my case. I'm giving you the reason why the church should take care of those who minister to her, but I don't want you to think I'm giving these to you so that you'll take care of me because I'm not going to go back on what I said I was going to do. And that puts them in a very embarrassing situation. And not to mention his weighty and powerful letters, they can't compare with that either. And the fact that Paul doesn't care even if they think he's an idiot in speech because he's not so in knowledge. So he continues to give them knowledge, he continues to do what he's going to do, and he continues to refuse remuneration from the church. And that's super embarrassing for all these guys who are here still taking money from the church. So he's in a good spot. He just says, I don't have to do anything new. I just have to keep doing what I've been doing, what the Lord has given me as my sphere of ministry. So he's an acute embarrassment to them, and he's faithfully, humbly doing the work and writing on tablets of their hearts and bringing his ministry to them without charge at a great personal expense. And then, not even taking any credit for that, 2 Corinthians 10, 17, you know, anything good in him, he says, comes from Jesus. It's not even because I'm an eminent apostle and you should listen to me because I met with the risen Christ. It's not that at all. What is it? He who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The Lord gets credit for anything good that happens. So he's just super annoying to them, and he knows they're in a really tight spot, and they're not going to, because they're greedy, they're not going to stop taking anything from the church, and he's never taken any, and he's not going to, and then he's just going to keep on doing what he's been doing. For he, it's not he who commends himself that's approved, but whom the Lord commends. Paul knows what the Lord thinks is great, and he's just kind of making his life just like that. And that's sometimes its own vindication. The Lord knows who's great, right? Faithfulness to keep doing what you know the Lord expects you to do, and not necessarily what people may expect you to do. And in Paul's case, what the false teachers and those who had been taken captive temporarily by them think he should do. Just keep faithfully serving. And it's interesting, at the end of last week's sermon, Ben came up and reminded me of this verse from Matthew eleven sixteen. This is precisely what's going on with Paul. It's precisely what goes on in churches all around the country all the time. Uh, a pastor who can't do anything right. It's, um, here, here's Jesus. Jesus is speaking. This is, this is how he, he, what he says about the, about the people who are religious. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children. Now, this isn't like winsome, it's great to be like a kid, okay? This is an insult. It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children 
and say, we played a flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man comes, so speaking of himself, eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by your deeds. Same thing Paul said. I'm just going to keep doing what I do and it's going to be vindicating for me. See? This is precisely how it works for Paul. No matter what he did, somebody's complaining. And it's the whole adage, you know, you can please some of the people most of the time and most of the people some of the time, but all the people none of the time. Somebody's not going to have, somebody's going to have a problem with what you're doing. But sometimes just faithfully doing what you're supposed to do vindicates itself. And that's what Paul's saying to here. And the last part of that, that elder passage from 1 Peter 5, 4, I read to you a minute ago. You know, you just keep doing what you're doing. And faithfully, as you see the Word of God and what it says you're to do, you just keep doing it regardless of, of the criticism or the expectations or whatever it is. And then 1 Peter 5, 4 says, when you're doing that, and then the chief shepherd appears, so your boss shows up. If you're ministering to the church as an elder, your boss shows up, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. If you're doing what you're supposed to do, the boss is going to say you did right. He doesn't care if, if, if half the people you impacted just thought you were terrible. I mean, imagine the Apostle Paul. If, 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 you've just, if you're only as good a minister as the person you're interviewing in the church, then there would be plenty in there who said, you know, he stinks. He didn't care. Because when the chief shepherd shows up, He's the one that's going to say, good job or not. And Paul modeled his life, not he who commends himself that's approved, he whom the Lord commends. And he's not, he hasn't given a secret, that in secret, what you're supposed to do. Paul just says, keep on doing that. Peter says the exact same thing. And as you're doing the faithfulness, faithful ministry along the way, you may reveal falseness in other forms of ministry and, and criticisms that are false by just doing what you're supposed to do over a period, a long period of time. You just outlast the critics. It's going to undermine, if you will, the underminers. They want to be regarded as equal. They want to be considered superlative apostles. That's what this means, to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they're boasting. They want to be regarded just like Paul. They want to be regarded as somebody who does these kinds of things. Paul's just going to keep on doing what he's doing because that's just going to undermine all of that stuff. That's what they're boasting about. When it comes down to the real work of the ministry, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's not what you say. It's how it turns out and how the Lord would re regard what you've done. These kinds of things are the things James talks about, if you remember in James 3, 13, 13 through 18. He says, for where, is jealousy and, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, was there jealousy and selfish ambition in, in the church in Corinth? Oh, yeah. Plenty of guys who wanted to do what Paul did. Plenty of guys who want to be revered as great and, and raised up a standard of their own so they could be revered as great and then uh, denigrated Paul. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, what is it? There's disorder in every evil thing. Beloved, you don't have to look very far underneath the veneer of false ministries to see disorder in every evil thing. It, sometimes it gets revealed and it's like you're aghast at that, that that's been going on. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, unwavering, stay the course, without hypocrisy. So the truth of your life rings out. You're not saying one thing and doing something else. Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, I've had to use this numerous times in the ministry, even here over the years. Some people seem to come in and it's always contention, contention, contention. Always got to argue about something. There's always something wrong with something. You know, and and when they're talking to people, it's just always an argument. 
And sometimes I pulled him aside and said, you know, have you ever read James 3.18? The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace. This is not peace. What you're doing isn't peace, and so you're not sowing a seed that's fruit is righteousness, okay? You're sowing a seed whose fruit is contention. So, you know, this is what Paul's dealing with. It's contentious people, hard people, people who have expectations of him, that he, and he doesn't care. Are the critics of Paul peaceable, unwavering, without hypocrisy? Absolutely not. What are they? Let's see, verse 13. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. It starts this way. He says, for such men. Now, everyone in Corinth knows who Paul is talking about. We don't. And that's okay. We've seen that numerous times when he says some certain thing. He refers to some person. We don't know who that person is. It doesn't, we don't have to know who that person is because the whole church knew who it was. They knew the names of these guys that Paul is speaking about. And if these guys are sitting on the front row of the assembly when this letter is read, this is going to be embarrassing. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now, Paul isn't tolerant. I've said numerous times, you know, a lot of pastors don't even come close to saying the things the Apostle Paul said to the church, and maybe they should from time to time. Paul's not tolerant. He's not even pleasant when it comes to truth. When it's a matter of the honor of God, we saw that earlier, uh, the honor of Christ and the pure bride, the Holy Spirit's work, that's the time for powerful language. It's not the time to equivocate. It's not the time to say, as the modern church perhaps would say, well, they hold a few points differently than we do, and they're very sincere about it, so we need to be understanding. No. It's not a surprise to us that people hold different positions about truth that's very clear in the Word of God. It doesn't mean that they're right because they're sincere about it. It means they're sincerely wrong, and we don't have to accept that. And Paul's not accepting this at all. He says they're false, false apostles. Just because they're sincere about it doesn't mean we need understanding. Paul's not understanding. He's not shadowboxing here. I mean, he really swings hard. For such men are false apostles, he said, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And this is very important. Let's look at the first one, false apostles. Very important for today. You see that. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to uh, check out too many books. You're going to see somebody claiming to be an, a modern-day apostle. You're going to see the Catholic Church certainly believes that the Pope is a modern-day apostle, that he has all the rights and privileges of the apostle. Um, you're going to see many of uh, a very, very well-known televangelists who would consider themselves apostles. Let's look at that, okay, because Paul says they're false apostles. And so he has to have some criteria by which he can make that statement. Let's just in general say, by saying false apostles, then they have no claim to the apostolic office and no commission from Jesus. It didn't get passed on to them. That's a hard thing for them to hear because they believe not only are they apostles, but the most eminent of apostles. Remember, Jesus appointed the apostles to do the founding work of the church, and foundations only need to be laid one time. After the apostles' death, their offices, that apostleship, which required an eyewitness relationship to Jesus, was not there anymore. Other offices would carry on the work. And the requirements that we're going to see in just a minute cannot be fulfilled by anybody today. There were a number of specific requirements for an apostle that are impossible for anybody today to fulfill. And let's look at a few of them. 
and you can make notes if this is something that's in, in your sphere and you're dealing with this, you can make some notes and then you can have some discussion and wield some truth. An apostle was an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. Not only were the original 12 apostles to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, all who had the gift of the apostle had to have seen the risen Christ. And they had to be direct associates of Jesus. So only a select few of the first generation of Christians would even meet this requirement. Obviously, nobody today could qualify for the gift of apostle if, if an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. So the gift of apostle was accompanied by two miraculous signs in order, again, to lay a foundation, and a foundation only needs to be laid one time. So sign gifts were part of the apostleship, and they were just that. They were signs both to accuse the Jews of missing Jesus and to verify the speaker or the message. Again, do we need to verify the speaker or the message now? Not when we have the completed word of God. So they had unique authority to receive special revelation from the Lord. Their calling and their commissioning by Jesus Christ included the ability to receive and communicate divine truth. In fact, on the night of his betrayal, if you remember this, Jesus promised them uh, this group of people. He promised some things to them that no one else could qualify for. In, in chapter 12, of, of, uh, chapter 16 and verse 12, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So they're very distraught. They understand what's going to happen with Jesus. He knows that this isn't a good time to share some other things. But he gives them some hope. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father have are mine, and therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now notice there the promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would guide these men into all truth concerning what Jesus did and said. And mark it, beloved, again, only those who were with Jesus from the beginning could claim this particular promise. Nobody else would have seen, uh, been in a position to know what they knew or to have seen what they saw. The Holy Spirit was going to bring these things back to their remembrance. And also, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 8, because you think about the Apostle Paul and all the times he had to defend his apostleship, he says this, and this language is important. In verse 8, he says this. What's the first four words? And last of all, so he's referring to himself, as to one untimely born, mark it, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. So that appears to be, uh, I think, indicate pretty clearly that Paul was the last person that Jesus Christ personally appeared to and commissioned. And we know that he spent three years out in the desert of Arabia with Jesus. And many times in Paul's writings, he says, I did not receive this from men, but directly from Christ. And we know that he, the Lord, tutored him. And so Paul qualifies. And that's why he says, and last of all, one untimely born. So instead of following the Christ, the Lord brought Paul along in a different route. And there's only one other recorded appearance of the risen Christ after his appearance to Paul and that's to the Apostle John, who's already an apostle, and he's on the island of Patmos. So that's the only time that the qualifications for an apostle were met, besides the original and Paul. So that's pretty, I, I think that's, that's fairly important that we, we note that, because today we have much of what goes on today in the name of being an apostle is false. 
and they would fall right into the same category. They, there's no way they can qualify for being an apostle, and yet they'll claim it, and we'll see some other things that they're going to do as well. So second, second description of them, besides being a false apostle, he says they are deceitful workers. And uh, that's an adjective meaning deceitful is dolios. It, it's the word for decoy. So literally, they work at putting out doctrinal decoys, if you will. So they preach a different Jesus. We already looked at that. They preach a different spirit. We looked at that. We know that's not the Holy Spirit. That's false spirits that have been around since creation. They preach a different gospel because it has to do with works along with uh, faith. And their private lives don't line up with their public lives. And what they say in public is different than what they say in private. So there's no truthfulness there. So it's falseness. And they try to come across as humble and committed. But it's just an act, see. Their biggest concern is for themselves and how they can benefit and be recognized and applauded. See? And they manipulate the Word of God, as we read earlier. And they create this, this uh, feeling of holiness and this, this atmosphere where you're worshiping. See, But it's all a charade, right? It's all just smoke and mirrors. You're trying to create this atmosphere where people feel like something's going on, but nothing really is. That's the type of deceitful worker. It's, it's doctrinal decoys. And then this last one, because we're out of time, this last one, distinguish or disguising themselves. It's a compound verb. It's, um, it's an interesting way to describe what they do. It kind of sums up the previous two. Uh, the first, first word is meta, is, is with or after. Skitmatizo is um, to fashion or appearance. The idea, literally, they change their look to pretend to be apostles. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Literally, they're changing their look. So they change their persona. They claim apostleship with, and here it is, this is so frequent, words, I have a word from the Lord to you. Oh, you actually have a direct revelation from Jesus to me. Well, then that would put you into a very small group of people called apostles but there's no way you can have a word from the Lord for me because you didn't spend any time with Jesus and you didn't see the resurrected Christ. So there's a big problem with having a word of the Lord for the church. Having a divine revelation. Having special knowledge. It's always that, right? I have something to tell you. It's very important. The Lord gave this to me for you. And then gullible people, children in the faith, will say, oh, I didn't know that. That, that must be true. So that means everything I knew before must have been false. That's what it means to be deceived. See, that's how that works. They disguise themselves as authoritative, see, and it's present middle, so that just means that the subject is acting on itself. That's pretty interesting, right? So the Holy Spirit's not giving them this gift. The Holy Spirit's not giving them the word. The Holy Spirit is not making them an apostle. They're making themselves an apostle. That sounds a lot like what goes on in charismatic churches today, doesn't it? And teaching people how to speak in tongues, right? Instead of the Holy Spirit actually speaking a known language and somebody outside, out there hearing the known language and being able to say what was said, it's just, I'm going to teach you how to do this. The whole thing is self-manipulated. What kind of spirit is it? False spirits deceiving people, and they've been deceiving people all along. So they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. This is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. These guys are shysters and manipulating it themselves. Paul says, these guys, these guys are who's sitting in that front row. See, And it's interesting, you know, they've got no com divine commission from the Redeemer. Paul has, has uh, thus far argued the case without giving them an explicit designation as deceivers, but now he's all done 
handling them with kid gloves. But here he says, the people who everyone in the church knew are really imposters and enemies of Christ. And you know, and I, I thought this was funny, I was thinking this in, in my office. It's happened a lot. It, people will say to me sometimes, um, you know, they think the pastor's looking at them when they're talking, and, and they think he's talking about them and talking to them. And if people come up and say, you know, Pastor, I saw you look at me when you were saying this certain word, you know, this verse or whatever, and uh, I, th- I think you were, you were talking to me. And I, were you talking to me? Let's just clear the air right now. You know, I try to make eye contact with you, but it's not connected to what I'm saying. I'm just talking. I'm giving you the message. And if I happen to look at you, it's not because I was thinking you apply. That would be so foolish of me to do that. I don't, I don't know where you are spiritually, right? It would just be, that would be falseness for sure. So I'm just going to clear the air. I'm not thinking of it. People say, did you see me get up? My phone rang. I didn't see you get up, and I didn't hear your phone ring. So you're good, all right? I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the church. I'm making eye contact. But people will think, you know, he's talking to me. As opposed to what went on in Corinth, Paul sends a letter. Somebody stands up in the assembly, and the guys are sitting there. They're eminent apostles. They're probably either sitting in the thrones up here. You know how churches used to have that thrones across there where all the big wigs sit, you know, so you can revere them. Um, in all the churches I've pastored, if you're an elder with the church with me, we just sit down there until it's our turn, you know. There's nothing special about it. Nothing's going, nothing's going on out here. Nothing for sure is going on up here, okay? So there's no point in, like, drawing attention to that. But here's these guys, the, the eminent apostles. They're probably sitting there somewhere in a position of, you know, authority. And then the letter gets read. Oh, dude, false apostles? Oh, my goodness, deceitful workers? You're putting out a decoy of, you know, decoy of doctrine? Disguising themselves as an apostle? Yikes. And he's not even done. Come back next week, Lord willing. I mean, he just says, these guys are workers of Satan. They're just disguised to look like a believer. So he's not, I mean, he's, this is a roundhouse now. I mean, he's, you know, it's mixed martial arts. It's going to be all over for them when he gets all done, okay? So this is, um, this is where we're going. I hope, I hope it's helpful for you. Again, you know, chapter 10 through 13, it's hard to be cohesive with it. I mean, you can see it just, it's all over, but it's what Paul wants the church to know. The Lord wants us, you know, to know what his word says. We're going to go through it. We'll try to put it, you know, put it in a cohesive uh, form where you can take it with you and you can process that as the Lord guides you by his Holy Spirit. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Just give the Lord's, ask the Lord's blessing on, on our week this week and, and on his reading of his word. Lord, we thank you today for your word and that we can be um, in this uh, together we were able to uh, worship musically together earlier, and thank you for being so good to us. We, we don't want to ever forget how good you are to us. Apart from your grace, apart from your faithfulness, apart from someone bringing the gospel to us, we would be lost without hope, and we're not, and we're so thankful for that. And Father, secondly, we're grateful that we could, we could give of what we have, that we can recognize that you've given all things to us, and we can pray and humble ourselves before you recognizing you're in authority over us and all things come from you and then we get into your word that you have you have elevated equal to your own name and then we read through it and every word as jesus said uh we're fed by it and so lord i give that all to you certainly we can come away from this understanding that the church is not to be children or not to be children easily deceived but able to discern not gullible we we want to grow up like we want our children to grow up with an understanding of truth able to fend off falseness able to easily understand and laugh off those kinds of things that would trip up people who don't know uh, doctrine. We want our children to know what we say, 
and then have them come to faith so that they have the Holy Spirit with them to help them. Lord, I pray that our church will be that way too, strong, discerning, able to read the Word of God and do it each day so that we know what your will is. It's easy to find the will of God. People say, what's the will of God for my life? Well, I understand that you don't perhaps know the plan of God for your life on a day-to-day or maybe in the future, but you certainly know the will of God. Many passages tell us precisely that we're to pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. Be thankful for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is what God wants for you. You know, start there. Help us to start there. So we read your word. We're going to see what your will is. Help us to do those things. And then, then the other part tends to go as you have designed it. We're walking with you. You reveal those next steps as we need to see them. And you can help us discern between right and wrong and good and best. And so, Father, help us to be a wise church. Help us to be a, a mature church. Help us to grow in depth of our understanding of your word. And, and then our response to that of course, to go out and before the world love you, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and to give the gospel out to everyone you've put in our sphere and with a plan to make that happen, teaching them to observe all that you've commanded us, and you promised to be with us in that effort. For that, we give you thanks. We praise you today for this time together and the joy it is to just be together. And all God's people said,